0: Welcome to another edition of Running the Race with Rob King. I'm so glad that you're with us as we continue on our journey through 1 John. And I'm so glad that you're listening today. There's, I mean, the podcast that we do is just simple Bible teaching, no interviews, no music, no frills, just trying to teach through the Word of God uh, systematically, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So far, we've gone through 1 Peter and 2 Peter, now we're on 1 John. If you ever want to reach me, you can do that at robkingpodcast at gmail.com. Let's dive right into the Word. I guess before I could say, before we get into it, I could say, there's nothing in our life that's going to impact us like the Word of God. You couldn't overstate that. I, I, I mean, I've been serving the Lord now for over 20 years. I don't know how long. And, you know, you want to grow in the Lord. You want to be a disciple of His, a follower of His. You want to... Uh, you know, quote unquote, hear his voice. I always tell people, if you want to hear his voice, read his word. If you want to hear his audible voice, read his word out loud. This is the way that God has decided to speak to us in these days through his son, Jesus Christ, through the word of God. And that is you, you say, I want to be a disciple. I want to grow. How do I grow? How do I grow? There's no mystical way. There's no magical way. There's no magical mystery tour. There's just his word, studying that, reading that, letting, letting the Holy Spirit work through the word. What is the Holy Spirit going to do? Going to remind us of everything that Jesus said. And so this is the work that God wants to do inside of us. And so as we get into his word, never underestimate the power of just studying his word. Face value for what it's worth, not reading into it, not trying to read you know, into it to find out what is is this saying, you know, mystically to me about some decision? I have no read it at face value. That's what we're going to do as we get into it today. Let's see. First John chapter two, uh, verses seven through 11 is where we're at now. Here's what he says. Well, let me give just a little more background. Remember that John is writing this as a pastor, as a shepherd to the sheep of the churches in Asia Minor, who are at this time upon his writing Um, being some of them being tempted to be led away by false teachers who sneak into the church and teach false doctrine. Jude will also write about this in that one chapter that he wrote and will warn us of these false teachers. Just a reminder, the false teachers that John is talking about are the kind of pre-Gnosticism, Gnosticism Gnosticism meaning knowledge, and they would teach that there is a deeper knowledge. There is this mysterious thing that only... The super spiritual can figure it out. And of course, they were the elite super spiritual. They knew all the secrets. And if you didn't have their secret, if you didn't know their take on the word of God, if you didn't know their take on the gospel, if you didn't know their deeper knowledge, then you just weren't spiritual enough. And so they were in the dark. They did not love people because they looked down on people. And, and this was leading people astray. It was uh, to the Galatians. Paul wrote, who is bewitching you with another gospel? There is not another gospel. There is one gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let anyone who teaches another gospel be cursed. So I give you that background because it's going to help us as we study today. Here's what it says. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. beloved. I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Interesting passage. You know what sets us apart as believers in Christ? What identifies our walk with Jesus more than any, anything else is our love. Any growth that we have in our walk with Jesus, any—how uh, do I want to say this? When you are growing in your walk with Christ, it will be evidenced in a greater love. We are being sanctified. Jesus said, you're clean because of the words of I, that I have spoken to you, my word is truth. So the word has this sanctifying process in it in us and that's the work that it's doing we're growing in an awareness of God's holiness we're aware, we're growing in an awareness of our lowliness we're growing in an awareness of our utter dependence on him we're growing in grace that is a knowledge of the grace that we need and with great humility we we come to him and we're growing but every single time we grow it's evidenced in a greater love, a greater love for God and a greater love for others. If someone says they love God and they hate their brother, they don't love God. Because to know God and to love God is ha- to have his love in us working through us in our relationships with others in very painfully practical ways. You could say, Well, I love Jesus, it's just all his followers I can't stand. If you don't love your brothers and sisters, you don't love God. There's a lot of people think they have this special thing going on with Jesus. Well, we me and him have an agreement. We, I just love him, and it's just me and him, and we're all alone. No. The New Testament knows nothing about a Christian who's not involved, engaged with other believers. So, and this is not a new commandment Jesus is, is giving them, it's, or, or that uh, John is giving them, because from the very beginning, we know... When, uh, even let's take, for example, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What's the one thing I need to do? What is the secret? <laughs> the secret to life is one thing. What is the one thing? You know, of course, Jesus didn't give him one thing. He gave him two. He said, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's the foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, all of the law, all of the prophets, all of the gospel rest on these two things, loving God and loving others. The rich young ruler was wondering, you know, what's the most important part of being in the kingdom? What's it all about? What's the most important aspect? This is a great question. I think he was anticipating to, you know, get some rule or some law or some ritual that could be followed to ensure that you were in the kingdom and that you're pleasing to God, the answer wasn't something that was so simple that you could just follow something that you could wake up in the morning and do these three things. And then, boop, you know, you know that you're saved and you're following God. Instead, Jesus gives him an answer that would evidence your salvation, if you will. Loving God, loving your neighbor. It can't be written into a rule book. It's kind of like loving your wife. Just what are, the, what are the five steps to a successful marriage? There are no five steps. Are you kidding me? It's a relationship. It's way messier than five steps. It's got to be lived out. And this Christian life has to be lived out from a transformed life. And it's evidenced that you are a new creation in Christ. The best way to know if you're really saved is to judge the fruit of your life. And that's what this epistle calls us to do and allows us to do. It's an interesting epistle in that if you just looked at it from an aspect of John writing to us and saying, here's how you can know that you are saved. He gives us ways. In the last podcast, it was obedience. In this one, it's love. Here's, here's, Here's something that Paul wrote about love that will be familiar to you from 1 Corinthians 13 because it's used in so many weddings, and rightfully so. It talks about love. In its context, he's really talking about what true spirituality is about, because the Corinthians had gotten off into this kind of a spiritual one-upsmanship. Well, I'm, I'm more spiritual because I pray in tongues, or I'm more spiritual because I do this or I do that. And, and their meetings were just a mess. They were taking communion. They were you know honoring rich people over poor people, and then they were getting drunk at communion. And, and and some people were eating all of it and other people weren't eating. It was a meal at that time. And some people were getting none of it. It was just a mess. and And most of all, it wasn't loving. How can you say that you have all these spiritual gifts and you're so spiritually profound, but you don't have love? That's the context that Paul wrote this in. And he says, but earnestly desire of the greater gifts, greater gifts. That's the key here. I can show you a more still a more excellent way. If I speak with tongues of men and tongues of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. This is where he's talking about the greater gift. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith and I can remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag, and it's not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account the wrong that's been suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away with. And if there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it's going to be done away with. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes... The partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child and think like a child and reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is is love. Isn't this interesting what he wrote? Because he's saying, look, all these gifts, all these gifts, but the evidence of your salvation is loving one another, loving our neighbors, loving one another, loving God. All of this comes out of our new nature. So it's a good test for us as Christians to see if I guess I should say so-called Christians, to see if we really are in Christ or not. Like I said, John's uh, epistle gives us tests for assurance. He's not only rebuking the false teachers who boast of this mysterious puffed-up knowledge, somehow makes them better than other believers. They're prideful. They're in darkness. They don't have love. John is not only pointing out that, that, that they don't have love, so that we should be aware of false teachers, but he's also giving us a, a litmus test through this epistle, kind of to prove our salvation and our transformation. I think this is so wonderful. I mean, there are times when we want to have assurance and evidence of our salvation. We all know that we're not worthy of it. I mean, you know, you're, going to be, you're not worthy of eternal life. I'm not worthy of eternal life with God. I'm not worthy to come into his presence. There's nothing in us that d- d- does any of that. And we look at ourselves sometimes and say, man, I, I believe in Jesus. I, I just need, need some assurance of my salvation. Well, the assurance that we have a new creation, that we are a new creation, we have new life in us, is that we love. One of the key evidences in our new life in Christ is that we have his light by evidence of his love. You love Him and you obey Him. You love Him, then you love others. John is giving us kind of a a forensics. All the CSI shows are on right now. So this would be kind of that. You can investigate your salvation by saying, do I really love God and obey Him? Do I love others? Is there evidence of my love for others? In this, this new creation that I am, is is there evidence of that? At the end of this podcast, I'll share a little bit personally and give application to this uh, just just briefly at the end that maybe this will, will hopefully help you and encourage you. And it can be very encouraging because when you have a test and then you pass the test, you say, thank God I can rest in the assurance that I, although I am far from perfect, I know that I've been made a new creation in Christ. I'm in Christ and he's in me. That's the most important thing. There's so many people around saying that they're saved. And uh, and sometimes you look at people, and I'm not saying this to, it's interesting, because in our culture, you can't judge anybody, but you can judge fruit. I'm not judging their soul. I'm just looking at their life. And they're saying, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Everybody's a Christian. Well, if you are, then you have to be a person of light. Uh, Your life should look like the light, and, and there shouldn't be a bunch of darkness and And an obvious sin. And you you say that you're a Christian, but you you need to be a person of love because that's what it means to have Christ. Let me break this down a little bit. He says, beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you've had from the beginning. Uh, The old commandment is the word which you have heard. So in other words, this isn't a new commandment because this is something that we know from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. We're to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This wouldn't have been a new commandment to these Christians, because from the beginning of their Christian life, as he is saying, he's here pointing to the beginning of their Christian life, when they were saved, when they were taught the gospel the first time and came to Christ, uh, the first time when they came to Christ, he's saying they would have heard that from that starting point, to love one another. So it isn't new. It's not anything new. It's from the very beginning, but also from the beginning when they started to follow Christ, They've heard about it, but then he almost seems to contradict himself because then he says, on the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Here's what he means by this. Of course, John is not contradicting himself. He's rather saying it's a new commandment because it's fresh. Not necessarily new in like space and time or chronologically new, but this commandment was from the beginning but it but it is new because now we see it in Christ Jesus. We knew that God has called us to love one another, but when Christ came, then now I mean now we have this perfect example, a perfect life that shows us as we study his life, exactly what it looks like to love one another. I think immediately of what the disciples said when they asked questions like of Jesus, they said, how many times should we forgive someone when they sin against us? Remember that? Or they say, well, I mean, who is my neighbor? I love that question. Who is my neighbor? Because this is the ultimate revelation of how dark our hearts are. I mean, as soon as we hear about love, forgiveness, sacrificing for others, we say, well, I mean, how many times and who who is my neighbor? I mean you know it's I mean this person's not my neighbor. They don't live that close to me, and this person's hurt me multiple times, and I don't have to forgive them. I mean more than what, three or four, or five, or seven times, maybe? I mean, I've forgiven him a number of times, but there's got to be a limit, right? So these are great questions from human beings because they saw in the person of Jesus this ability to forgive even while he's on the cross, he's forgiving. And we're saying, man, we're not going to, we got to do that. That's a whole different kind of love. Take, for example, when Jesus was at the Last Supper, he took up the towel, he washed the feet of the disciples. Now, they had lived with him for three years. They saw what love was really like. They saw the humility. They saw the sacrifice. But they still didn't get it because of the Last Supper. They were quick to walk in, find the best seat at the table, who could be closest to Jesus. And they didn't offer to wash anybody's feet. They weren't servants. They were still arguing about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. Then the Son of God, their Messiah, the Creator, took a towel, bent down, and wash their feet think about that that's the kind of love that god has for us and that's the kind of love that when we possess him the holy spirit possesses us maybe better said that's the kind of love we have active in us for others for god and for others paul captured it well in philippians chapter 2 he said look jesus existed in the form of god but did not regard equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So now we want to see what love really looks like. This is the new, fresh kind of thing that he's talking about. This is a new commandment, because now we only need to look at Christ. He had perfect love, perfect sacrifice, perfect humility. And by the way, humility is the evidence of the love of God. Uh, humility is, an, is the evidence of the love of God. Just like the tax collector who stood some distance away, and he wasn't even willing to lift his eyes to heaven, but he was beating his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a great picture of Christianity. Love comes from that humility, that level of brokenness that comes when you realize how you need a savior and how the the chasm between you and God could only be filled by a mediator. How dependent you are for your life, your eternal life, just solely based on the grace of God. So remember that John is writing with these false teachers in mind, and these false teachers had this pride, and therefore they had hate and they walked in darkness. And then, you know, they didn't love, uh, they couldn't love others. They were looking down on others, right? This kind of goes together. Paul said in Romans, too, he said, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. He's pointing out that if you have the light, you have the life. If you have the life, you have the love. It it all goes together. And the Holy Spirit has been poured out in our hearts, as Paul said. And now he's given us the love of God. We should see evidence of the love of God. You know, if you see so-called Christians who have no love, you you shouldn't be surprised to say, I don't think that person's really saved. I grew up with some people. Most of the Christians that I've grown up around have been wonderful people. Every now and then you encounter somebody who's not loving at all. And you're like, man. That's weird that they're a Christian. Maybe, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I just want to pass the test myself. See, with pride, arrogance comes hate and darkness and all these things go together. You can't walk in pride and love at the same time. You can't walk in pride and humility, I mean, at the same time. So those of us who have been born again will see evidence of that in our humility and in our love. John goes on to say, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Obviously, this true light is Jesus Christ, and it's already shining, meaning that Jesus has come in and inaugurated his kingdom in the world. He is now shining. By the way, that light is shining, and and right now in the world, that light shares with the darkness, so to speak, the enemy's kingdom still alive, but will eventually, in the millennial reign of Christ, take on a brighter and greater significance and then when a new heaven and a new earth comes well then it's complete a complete takeover so there will only be his light and his life for all of eternity we will reign with him so so John is saying this light has come into the world it's shining and there's this sense of a progressive shining right now it's shining somewhat but but eventually it's going to take over and Isaiah chapter 60 the prophet Isaiah writes this listen to this Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. I used to sing a song. We used to sing a song in church back in Illinois when I was a kid. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Here it goes on. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness of the people's. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. At the end of the chapter, the end of the chapter of Isaiah chapter 60, it says this, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and your God for your glory." Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be over. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. That's hundreds of years before the Messiah comes. And that's also reflected in Revelation where it describes what this new heaven and this new earth will be like. There'll be no need for a sun and no need for all these lights in the constellation because God will be the light. And we'll have no more sorrow and no more pain and no more sin. Heaven can be best described as to what is not there. Yes, there's going to be jewels and gold and it's going to be beautiful and gorgeous and pure and wonderful, but God's going to be there. But but what's not going to be there is any struggle with sin of any kind. That is when light has taken over. What we have now dimly, we see it, we get a glimpse of it, but it's going to be in full blazing glory when we're there with him. The moment we leave this earth as believers in Christ, we go from here and immediately we are with him, absent from the body, present with the Lord. You've had anybody in your life that you've lost. They've known Christ. You have not lost them. Christ has gained them and they are with him. And he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. My father's house are many, many mansions, many apartments, many additions. I have uh, he has many additions and he's got a place just for you and you're going to be with him. And if and Jesus, interestingly, in John 14, this is a total tangent, but I love John 14. He said, hey, if this weren't true, would I be saying it to you? In other words, truly, truly. I mean, in other words, this is Jesus saying it. And if he can promise you salvation, salvation is is a permanent state an ongoing state. It it is eternal. And he's preparing a place and we're going to go and it's going to be light and life like we can't even imagine. In other words, when a new heaven and a new earth arrive, we're going to have fullness of light, fullness of love. Now let's move on to what John says next before I go off into another tangent here. Here's what he says. The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light. There's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'll remind you once again that John is addressing this letter as a pastor to his flock He's concerned for them, but he's writing also to address these false teachers who walk in darkness, and they're arrogant, they're causing others to stumble. That's what that passage means. They're causing other people to stumble because of their false teachings. They are in the darkness, and then they, they cause others to stumble. Of course, if you're in darkness, you can't see where you're going, and you hit your pinky toe on the edge of a table in the darkness, right? These false teachers in John's day were arrogant. They claim this higher knowledge, some secret pathway to enlightenment that us common people or so-called common Christians wouldn't have. We see this today, and I'm going to say this. Uh, We need to see this in in our time, in our day and age. If so many of the New Testament teachers were talking about false teachers and it was a problem in the church, don't you know it's a problem now? It's not that the church is being destroyed from without. We know what the world is all about and the world's system. It's that there are inside the church... Tears among the wheat. We don't know the difference. God will have to sort all that out, but we can at least use some discernment to see where these false teachers are. We see this today because people say they have special knowledge about God. God's given me a, a word. I would ask anyone who says that God has given them a word, is it equal to the word of scripture? Because when God speaks, He speaks. He doesn't have a scale of one to ten where this is like a number one word, but this is like a number ten, not important word. I be very aware. This is a great warning. Anyone who says they have a word from God, we have His word. It's completed. There's sixty six books, and 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 it's everything that God wanted to say. He said it there, and He didn't. I don't think He needs to tell Matt, you know, or Susie or Joe. Uh, to add anything to His Word. I recently heard of uh, prophetic prayer. Have you heard of this? where people? I'm giving examples of what John would have been talking about with his people, but we see it in modern day. Prophetic prayer where people get words and insights and knowledge directly from God for other people. Please beware of that. Those who like to sit and wait in silence on the voice of God kind of to meditate, just clear your mind and let God talk to you words in your mind. Now I ask you, do you trust your mind? You, you, you're just going to hear from God that that's the way he's decided to speak to you. Turn away from the scriptures. Don't don't open the Bible. Just get alone with yourself in your mind. What could possibly go right with that? Beloved, this is a form of (laughs) narcissism. Really? It lifts up arrogant people. Uh, I've heard of people who say they wait for images and colors and pictures. I've talked to people. And then they take that color, that picture, that images, those words, and they just kind of go off on what they think God is saying. And of course, there's all kinds of people like me who are like, I've been serving the Lord for a long time, and I don't get words. Everybody, most of your rank and file Christians who are really saved would say, well, that doesn't happen to me. And pretty soon it's the Corinthian situation where there are the haves and there are the have-nots. So this is uh, arrogant people. They practice these things. They're nowhere mentioned in the scriptures, the, these ways. And then it just lifts themselves. It really magnifies themselves. And um, And then if you're a true believer, you have this sense of inferiority around these folks. And I've had that happen to me. Pastoring a church and have people come up and it seems like they... They're coming across like they're really spiritual and I've I'm I guess I'm just not. You ever have that feeling? Beware of that feeling. Jesus would never make his followers feel that way. Jesus didn't have closed, mysterious, you can only figure this out if you really know how to be really deep and spiritual. No. We read the Bible at face value and the Holy Spirit illuminates it to us. Jesus said everything out in the open. And what you hear in secret, say it out in open. Now, he did say, there are things I can't tell you yet because you can't handle them. That's Jesus. But Christianity is out in the open. There's no secret meetings. There's there's no Mormon secret closets of whatever where you then you learn the deeper craziness of Mormonism back in the back rooms. No, that is not Christianity. Christianity is wide open for everybody. And it's not some... Spiritual litmus test that you have to pass in order to, to, to be received by Jesus. There's spiritual growth, and there's depth of knowledge, yes, and sanctification. But it's evidence through love, through love. The greatest Christians you ever know are the most humble and the most loving. And in that way, they never come across like they're anything, uh, anything special. Uh, If there's ever a believer of Christ who comes around and teaches you something about Christ that makes you feel like you can't obtain it, then you can know that they're pointing at themselves. They're pointing at man and not to God, because anything that God commands us to do, he empowers us to do and enables us 100 percent of us to be able to do that according to His grace and for His glory. All true theology starts at God, finds its fulfillment in God, points to God, and is for the glory of God. It starts with Him, it can be done in Him, and He receives all the glory when it is done. All of our crowns will be thrown at His feet. It's all about Him. False teaching. All false teaching finds its root in men and points to men and what we can do. And it's for the glory of man. And it may be sneaky, but it's still from the arrogance of men and all of their carnal wants and desires. And these people who teach these false lofty teachings, I'm telling you, it's easy to see. Um, and they, they are just getting the reward they want the honor of men, the praise of men, and it's prideful. Let me give you a personal example of this. I met a man that God is using mightily in the world. I had the opportunity to sit and talk with John Piper, and I've had a lot of respect for him over the years, and I've watched a lot of videos and read things that he's written. And uh, I was aware of the kind of life that that I thought he lived, and uh, I didn't know what to expect when I met him. I was thrilled, thankful to be able to spend some time with him and sit down and talk. And uh, I'll admit to you that among all the people that I've ever met in the Christian world that are well-known, I won't use the word famous because that's oxymoronic in the Christian world, in my opinion, famous Christians for real. Um, That's another tangent I won't go off on. But God has used John Piper. He's well-known. And when I was talking with him, he was above everything else humble he was kind he asked questions uh he was generally interested in what i was going through in ministry and family and life it was really humbling to sit there with him actually Uh, he was just humble the man's written over 70 books i mean most of us, have we even read 70 books? <laughs> and then he's used all over the world by God. He's a real Christian. I mean, he's a fallen man. He's just a person. I get it. But he's someone that God is using. And how do I know that his theology is, is correct? Because he's humble and, and loving, and he really did seem like Jesus. It was abundantly evident, irrevocably clear, that this man was like Christ. He was like Christ. It was, sadly enough, it was almost surprising to me because in ministry, I had the occasion to meet many other well-known Christian leaders from other circles of the Christian world. I won't use any names, but most of them are from charismatic circles. Some of them were completely untouchable, folks. I hate to, to tell you this. They were aloof. In one particular case, this person was rather... I guess, famous in the Christian world. You couldn't even go into the room where that person was. They were speaking at a church and his associates were with him, but I wasn't even worthy. I couldn't even go talk to him. Why am I saying this? Do I have some ax to grind? No, I'm just, I was making a note of these people that I met and I was seeing the evidence of their life right in front of my eyes. Folks, if somebody is like Jesus Christ in your life, you will notice it. I'm, I'm saying we're all in different places and levels of sanctification. I'm certainly not perfect. But I hope that when you're around me, you sense the, 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 the work, the, the humbling work of Christ in my life. And you should, as a Christian, be able to take note of that in the people around you, and especially those who are teaching you. Are they like Christ or is it all about them? At the time, I didn't have the discernment to know the truth from error, and it's something that we're not often taught. You just kind of take it at face value and trust all these teachers. But if you see a person walking in pride, and they're not walking in love, uh, they're walking in darkness. How could you walk in pride and walk with Christ? How could you wake up every morning talking to the creator, creator of the universe, confessing your sins to Him, and think you are anything? But needy, right? They will, these false teachers make other people stumble by their teaching. If you see who men, men who are prancing on stage talking about themselves, I would even go so far as to say if they're wearing expensive, gaudy clothing and they look just like the world, bringing all the attention, all the glory to them, I think we should be able to know and we should be able to discern pretty simply that's a false teacher. Just because they throw in some Bible verses and talk, say the name Jesus every now and then, if they don't look like Christ, smell like Christ, walk like Christ, love like Christ, they're not with Christ. Saying this because it appears we live in a generation that has almost zero discernment when it comes to false teachers. John would have been dealing with the same thing. And they're right in the church, tears among the wheat. The reason that's one of the reasons that he wrote this epistle. So it's important that we think about these things in our own lives and who we're following and and the teachers and uh, that, that we're looking to in our life. Now, the same author of this epistle, of course, also wrote the gospel of John. And in his gospel, he said this, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, if we say we have fellowship with Him and we walk in arrogance, we walk in pride, we walk in darkness, we walk in hatred, looking down on others in our pride, then we are not with Christ. Pretty straightforward. I'm also reminded that Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Isn't this interesting? Let... Your light shine and let them see your good works. Because of what we learn and what John is teaching us here, it's interesting that if you think about let your light so shine, it means let your love so shine before men that they would see your good works. Well, they're going to be good works if they're coming from love. And your good works, what are they? Well, that sacrificial, humble, loving, others-focused treatment that you give people. It's, it's light. It's so obvious. With that, I, I need to close here. Let me give a practical application to, to this passage, if I may, and ask you some difficult questions, and I'll also ask myself. And, and then I'm going to share just a bit of a personal experience, uh, if you have the time. Um, uh, I'm a little reticent to to share it, but I think I'm going to anyway. It's So let me just, practical application. So it's easy to read these words on a page, talk about them. Pretty easy to talk. It's altogether different to walk this out in our life. And since this is kind of a litmus test for our salvation, maybe it's good for us to answer these questions and see where we are in our walk with Christ. Am I really a new creation in Christ? Do I see evidence of a new creation? Does this light abide in me? Do I abide in the light? Do I have his love? Do I love him in a way that helps me, like I I want to obey him? And do I love other people? Do I love the brothers and sisters in Christ especially? Now, an affirmative response to these questions is an affirmation and assurance of our salvation. So this is good news. It's critically important. Here's some of the questions I would ask. I would ask, do you love others? Maybe, maybe think about the person you like the least and say, do I love them? Do you love God enough that your love compels you to obey Him? Are you obedient to Him? That's the, that's the true way you love God is you want to please Him and honor Him and you want to obey Him. When you don't obey Him, do you go to Him as a child, repentant, genuinely wanting to turn from sin and say, Father, I I want to please you? That desire to please God and obey God, that only comes from God. So be thrilled when you're driven to repentance. When that sorrow leads you to repentance, that's a great sign. Do you love others when it's difficult? Do you love others in your online conversations? Do you love others in your emails? Do you love others when they're not around you and you're just talking about them? Are you humble enough to apologize to people that you've hurt? So for those of you who are married, when's the last time you just asked for forgiveness instead of trying to prove you're right? Are you loving even when the relationship is tough? If you've gone through a divorce or if you happen to be unfortunately going through a divorce? Are you loving in that situation? If you are divorced, are you loving towards your ex? Do you love those who have hurt you? Do you love those who have spitefully used you? Do you love those who have made you suffer? Are your words about other people loving? Here's one we all share a bit of. We all share in that we've all suffered at the hands of others, right? We've all gone through pain. So this is the personal part. I hope you'll in, indulge me. This is not to draw attention to myself, but just to say, here's some here's some practical, as I was reading through this and studying this and thinking about it, I thought, man, this was a real test uh, for us. And I'll, I'll share this with you. Um, I know many of you are listening from Ohio and will know a little bit of what I'm talking about. I won't go into detail, but just for our listeners, we went through a very difficult time with my family a couple years ago. There was mistreatment, lies, (coughs) excuse me. There was a real temptation for us to fight for our reputation. This is just personal story. Temptation that Stephanie and I had to kind of stand up for our rights and demand apologies and tell our story. And you've all had that, like yada, 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 right? I mean, just we just it's our right and blah, blah, blah. I even had many good ministerial friends that I trusted who told me to do such things, advised me to do such things. Um, But we've been talking about in this lesson that we have this light now in Christ. We can look at Christ's response. We can look at what love does. And that gives us really kind of a, a map of how we should respond when we're mistreated. If he made, listen, if he made himself of no reputation, I did have some people wonder why we didn't stand up and fight for our rights. Well, I'm going to explain it to you. If Jesus Christ made himself of no reputation, should we go around defending ours? Is our reputation that sacred? And if Jesus forgave others while he was on the cross, can we forgive others while we're here on the earth? We we didn't shed any blood. I guess the bottom line is that Stephanie and I prayed about it, and we just couldn't find anything in Christ that would cause us to be justified in any of the ugly behavior that we really wanted to do. So it would have been unloving behavior, I believe. I'm not saying we handled it perfectly either. It's one thing we w- wanted to do was just not sin. We wanted to not be displeasing to the Father. It wasn't because we're so spiritual, because we're so good. As a matter of fact, I mean, it revealed all kind of weakness in us, right? It was extremely difficult. It was very tempting. It would have been so easy for us to fight. It's so easy, right? To be ugly, but I just couldn't see it in Christ. So we prayed, we asked the Lord to help us, and He helped us. I'm sharing all of this because I think it might be easy to talk about the love of God, the sacrifice, talk about laying down your life for others, or talk about being obedient to the Lord, or talk about how you could you know be loving through difficult times but when it's your daily life when it's your marriage and your family and your children and your boss and your workplace that's where it's critical it's critical in our daily lives it's not easy it requires his grace and mercy and help but we don't live as Christians in theory we live as Christians on display in front of other people in our lives Everything we post online, every word we say to our friends, every conversation we have at dinner shines brightly in front of others for the sake of Christ. I think that's one of the driving forces behind the response that Stephanie and I gave in that particular situation. It's long past now, but we wanted to, we just didn't want to do anything to cast a shadow on the light the life, the love of Christ. I don't know if that made any sense. I mixed my metaphors up. We didn't want to make Jesus look bad if you can do that. Do you understand what I'm saying? We want to be true followers of His. We wanted to be like Him and we didn't get it perfect, but I hope and pray that He received glory through it. Now, if I take this practical application through what John is saying in, in this epistle, my wife and I can say, uh, Look what the Lord has done. And that that really evidenced for us the salvation that He has in our life because we know on our own we could never respond that way. He not only showed us how to live, but Jesus gave us the power and the ability to do that in the midst of very difficult situations. And, and let me say this again, even though I've already said it. I'm not sharing this because we are somehow specially, you know, talented, exalted, or lifted up. Not at all. We are completely humbled, dependent on the Lord. We know that the only way we walk through that difficult season with the Lord and and through that suffering is that he carried us through. But we can look back now and say, that's definitely loving evidence of the salvation that God has wrought in our heart. And that's what I want for you. You're in a difficult situation. This is where you really need to pause, wait don't take the advice of everybody around you who's saying, get even, stand up, guard your reputation. It's all worldly. Watch how Jesus lived his life. Think about his reputation. By the way, he's doing pretty good now because that, that passage in Philippians that Paul wrote where he said that he became obedient even to the point of death on, death on the cross, and he he was a, a servant, and then God gave him a name that was highly exalted above every other name. So... We want to be true followers of the Messiah. Look at your life. Is there evidence of this new life, this new creation that's taken place? Is salvation evidenced by the love that I have for others in my life? The previous podcast, we talked about obedience, looking at our life in that way. Now we look at it in terms of love. And you can be greatly encouraged because if you are in the light and you are loving God and you are loving others, you can have the assurance again that you have been made new by Christ because no person without Christ can love others well. And they definitely can't love others with the love of God. And they for sure can't love others when their going gets tough and when there's mistreatment, when there's a divorce or gossip or when there's trouble that they're going through. That's when love is the most satisfying. It's like the peace of God in the midst of a storm. When the love of God rises up in your heart, when you've been treated poorly, it's just a wonderful gift that the Father gives you to forgive them. They know not what they do. Then you can pray for those who curse you. You can pray for those who misuse you. And you can can have a love in your heart from God for them. And you know that I am a son of my Father. He loves me. And by His love... I can love others. And if you're like me, you won't do that perfect the first time, but you keep relying on him saying, Lord, I know you love me. Help me to love others. Father, I pray that you would help us to let your light shine before men this week, that we would love you. Well, obey you well, and that your loving of us would be evident to the people around us. Jesus, we want to be more like you, not just Christians in name, but Christians in character and virtue. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for this time together. Bless all the listeners today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.